Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, welcome to Wikipedia. This week on the podcast, I speak to Dr. Michael Twineman, who is a cardiologist specializing in quantum medicine. Now, I know you might be thinking, what on earth is that? Well, it's the type of medical practice which investigates prevention and treatments for the whole body in all areas of medicine. So it draws both on Eastern and Western medicine philosophy. Dr. Michael Twyman, if you follow him on Instagram, is such a wealth of information when it comes to the prevention story. But of course, he started his career as a cardiologist, and so he was absolutely at that treatment forefront. But he has, over time, shifted his practice, and this is what we talk about. So to dive into the weeds, we do chat about heart disease risk and how to prevent heart attacks, the importance of mitochondrial function, endothelial health and why the light-dark cycle and circadian rhythm is just so important. We also discuss nitric oxide, which you may or may not know is something that is produced in the body. Uh, We can also get it from, uh, or we can help that production through our diet. But we talk about the changes in nitric oxide production as we age, what we need to consider and how to ensure vascular health in the long term. I really enjoyed this conversation. He was, as I said, just full of really practical tips and it was such a pleasure to chat to him. Dr. Twyman is a board certified cardiologist who focuses on the prevention and early detection of heart disease. Dr. Twyman completed his cardiovascular training at St. Louis University after he completed a four-year active duty tour as an internist at Naval Hospital in Beaufort. He has been in private practice since 2012. And heart attack prevention is his passion. He utilizes the best of conventional medicine, integrative and functional medicine, quantum medicine, to get to the root cause of the patient's cardiovascular issues. So I really think that you will enjoy this conversation. And before we jump into the interview with Dr. Twyman, just like to remind you that Monday's Matter registration is open from now until Friday. So you don't have a long time because we kick off on Monday, the 7th of November. It is my signature six week meal plan, a little bit shorter leading up into Christmas that utilizes protein sparing modified fasts as part of an overall program to help you lose weight, improve your body composition, and help you feel confident, calm, and capable around food, which is particularly challenging for some people this time of year. So I really wanted to bring you a plan that was based on some solid understanding of the science, had real results from the thousands of people that have now gone through it, and is actually just pretty delicious as well. So. The links to Monday's Matter will be in the show notes. Don't hesitate to flip me a message if you've got any questions. I would love to have you on board for the last program for 2022. All right, team, enjoy this conversation that I have with Dr. Michael Twyman. Dr. Twyman, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me this morning all about um, heart disease and, of course, your passion in sort of detecting and preventing heart disease. As a cardiologist, has this always been your area of focus or is this something that's developed over time? It's developed over time. I did my conventional cardiovascular training back in uh, 2009 to 2012 and treat a lot of you know acute heart attacks and patients with heart failure and really bad heart rhythm issues in the hospital and the intensive care unit and was initially thinking I was going to be an interventional cardiologist who would be somebody who's you know treating the heart attacks putting stents in in the middle of the night to uh, save people's lives and it's very rewarding but in my third year of training I got more interested in the prevention side of things and then really started doing some more uh, training on my own once I got out of my conventional training and then the past three years it's been all outpatient focused, all looking at risk factors to help people not have heart attacks and strokes in the first place. 
Yeah. And did you study sort of functional medicine after your cardiology training? Is that right? Correct. You know, it was generally, I kind of came into it from the kind of the paleo side of things. You know, I uh, had a family member who had some real sensitivities to gluten, which ultimately a functional medicine doctor had uh, discovered for them. And then, you know, I didn't learn much about gluten in my training other than, you know, it caused, you know, celiac disease. Um, and didn't really realize that there was more people who were sensitive to it than, you know, the celiacs. And so that kind of uh, made me uh, interested to kind of jump down the rabbit hole first at the kind of the nutrition side of things. And then, yes, that led to kind of discovering you know, functional medicine, and then later, kind of what I you know now do is kind of the quantum medicine. You know, looking at mitochondrial health as well. And I'm always really interested to know how your sort of colleagues or peers at the time how they viewed your sort of shift or your pivot in your training. Like, do you want to share a little bit about that, or with, with everyone like, hey, mate, that's awesome. Um, I don't think I got the latter that it was awesome. It was just more of a, a curious, like, what are you doing? You know, yeah, I'm wearing the, the glasses uh, on a purpose because these were the ones that I originally uh, you know, wore back in 2017 when I kind of discovered circadian biology. And these are the glasses that I wore on a f- long flight to Asia so that I didn't die from the jet lag. But I start, you know, wearing these in the hospital and protecting myself from the computers uh, with these glasses. And people are like, you know, what are you wearing these glasses for? I'm like, well, it does something with, you know, melanopsin and blue light. Yeah, don't worry about it. But so they mostly just kind of left me alone and let me do my own things. Um, but ultimately, I really just got interested in that I didn't want to be in the hospital anymore because the hospital is not a great place from a technological standpoint. I mean, there's a lot of blue light and Wi-Fi and, you know, 5G and, you know, all the things that, you know, are bombarding, you know, healthy people. So I wanted to kind of step out of the hospital situation and you know more focus on the outpatients. So uh, my colleagues were supportive of that and said, yeah, okay, you do you, you know, we'll do us. And you know, I don't fault them. You know, we did, you know, three years of conventional cardiovascular training to save lives. That's the skill set that they're most comfortable using at this time. Yeah, yeah, it's such a good point. And I'm definitely going to um come back to circadian biology because that is, as I understand, like something you're, you know, you're an expert in. First Dr. Twyman, can we talk about the progression of heart disease? You know, it's something that we often relate to older people in the population, but when does it actually start? So that's such a great question is that, you know, it's more common that an older person is going to experience an event, uh, you know, a heart attack, a stroke, you know, they're going to have symptoms enough that require a, you know, a stent procedure or bypass surgery. But the fatty streaks or the plaques actually start in your teens and 20s, but don't generally become clinically evident until you're in your 40s, 50s, or 60s. So you have a lot of time to kind of get ahead of things. And, you know, while I was an internist for many years, I mostly joked that, you know, I was being a preventive cardiologist at that standpoint, because I was also a preventive oncologist. You know, we did all sorts of different cancer screenings looking for the disease at the earliest stages. And unfortunately, sometimes cardiology gets the bad rapper, like you meet your cardiologist on the way to the cath lab, or you show up to the outpatient office of cardiologist, like, oh, I'm having chest pain. Why it's causing this chest pain? That's really kind of a late stage finding. Um, you could have maybe got to that 10 years before that when the plaques were much more mild and a little bit more, probably more easily treatable. So teens in the 20s is when it actually starts. So interesting because I think now with how, well, two questions sort of spring to mind. And one is, are we seeing younger and younger uh, cases of heart attacks or heart disease in the population? And and of course, are there any epigenetic factors like are, are things that parents are doing uh, sort of changing the risk for their offspring or their or their children? Like, do we have any knowledge around that stuff, Dr. Sure, and, and that's a great question is that, you know, the answer is definitely yes. You know, we're seeing, you know, atherosclerosis and events at an earlier age. I actually just uh, this past weekend saw a case report of a 17-year-old uh, high school, uh, I believe it was a basketball player, uh, had an acute myocardial infarction, you know, during the, during the game and they had to stent his right coronary artery. That's exceedingly rare, but in my, my days in training back, you know, in 2009 to 12, I never saw a case like that. I think we saw one person who was like in their upper 20s and it was just a, you know, without a bad luck, you know, strong family history type of story. But unfortunately, we're seeing more and more cases in the 30s and 40s. And, you know, so it's, you know, a treat, uh, you know, whenever you see the symptoms, but, you know, that means you just got to start looking for uh, the risk factors way before they develop those symptoms. And a lot of what you said, like the epigenetics, you know, your environment determines if the genes are turned on. You know, I tend to think of heart disease more as a mitochondrial issue than really a genetic issue in the majority of people. So, the, you know, the circadian biology and everything we'll get into is really how you kind of tune up your mitochondria. 
Yeah. And then just sort of following on from that, I suppose, because I think of, you know, my training as a nutritionist when I studied in the 90s and we talked about type 2 diabetes being adult onset Mm -hmm. diabetes. And of course, that's it's well known now that that is, you know, that's just not the case because so many more children uh, are developing it. And I think about the lifestyle factors involved in that. And then, of course, my mind shifts because I sort of tangent to children, screen time, uh, sleep or lack thereof, and the combination of their environment now and how that must be changing their risk factors sort of moving forward. Definitely. And I think, this, this, like you said, the, the screen time is probably one of the bigger factors that's not always as readily recognized. You know, the screens, it's great that, you know, we're having a conversation across the world using this technology, but the technology comes with a health consequence. You know, this light, that information that's coming off our screens, you know, the actual color from the screens, and then the Wi-Fi, you know, mine's actually hardwired right now, so all the Wi-Fi and Bluetooth are turned off on my device, but that light information interacts with your mitochondria, and that tells your body, you know, what time of day it is, essentially, and you make different hormones and neurotransmitters based off of what time of day it is, and so this device is basically confuse your body to think it's pretty much always noontime, and so this is one of the epidemics, you know, people have is that they don't sleep well, and a lot of times it's they're using their technology too late at night, confusing their brain, telling them it's still daytime. Yeah. And so with that then, um, how did you first become um, interested in circadian biology and sort of make that your focus? So back in 2017, I was taking a trip over to Asia. We were going to go meet the uh, the happiest people in the world in Bhutan. Uh, it's a small little country about the size of Indianapolis or Indiana and the uh, United States. Um, and it's a long flight. And so I was researching some uh, information about how to mitigate jet lag. And I knew all about melatonin and trying to kind of like time your meals a little bit. But I had never heard about you know wearing glasses to filter out light frequencies to your eyes. So I stumbled upon a website that was selling these glasses bought them, warm on the plane, kind of looked insane on the plane because you look like you're like a rock star or something like that wearing these glasses on the, in the airport in the plane. But when I got over to Asia, the jet lag was you know minimal compared to what I was expecting. And by the next day, I felt fine and we went along the way and enjoyed meeting those happy people in Bhutan. So one day I got back to the States, uh, did the deep dive into you know circadian biology and ultimately stumbled upon uh, some of the work of Dr. Jack Cruz and then later mm-hmm. Dr. Sachin Panda. He has a great book called you know, The Circadian Code that really kind of lays out the science on how circadian biology really works. So how does this relate then to your disease at preventing heart, heart, or, or sorry, your work at pre- preventing heart disease? And you mentioned mitochondria. Sure. And so it comes down to the mitochondria. So the mitochondria are the organelles in your cells that make energy for you. They do many things, but we'll just simplify it that, you know, the, the powerhouses of the cells. And your brain and heart are the two organs that have the most mitochondria. The real fun fact is the organ that has the most mitochondria is actually the ovaries because the ovaries require a lot of energy to create a new human. Um, But for the majority, it's the heart and brain. And the heart has approximately 3,000 to 5,000 mitochondria per cell. And if you weighed your heart, about a third of the weight of the heart is due to the mitochondria. And so if the mitochondria are making peak energy, everything's going well. But if the mitochondria can't make the energy that the body is demanding, first, the heart generally has what's known as diastolic dysfunction. The heart doesn't relax very well because it actually costs more energy for the heart to relax than it does to squeeze. And then if the mitochondria really become even weaker, think of it like a brownout, you know, there's a you know, power outage. So you got to just basically keep the emergency light on. Well, eventually, you don't have enough energy to even get the heart to squeeze effectively, and you develop congestive heart failure, where it's a systolic cardiomyopathy or weak heart from a pumping action. So I really looked at, okay, what tunes up the mitochondria? And it's mainly the light environments, and then that's dictated mostly by um, you know, the light that enters your eyes and hits your skin. So your circadian biology is really important at tuning up the mitochondria. And so what sort of tips with regards to the light environment can we give people that, um, I guess, helps mitigate risk or at least get some start on that trajectory of of, um, better health? Sure. So think about, you know, your great, great grandparents, you know, what did they have access to once the sun set? You know, they had campfires or candles or oil blubber and they had fire. So they would have had red light at night. So this bright blue light or white light that is, you know, what our eyes sense is not evolutionary what we were designed to see at nighttime. So, you know, light bulbs were only, you know, 
prevalent since 1879. So it's been a very short time in our evolution. So in an ideal circadian day, you know, if you're up before sunrise, you would protect your eyes with some type of lenses so your brain doesn't get the signal that it's bright outside. You'd go outside and see the sunrise. That would be the first light that hits your eyes. There's a receptor in the back of the eye called melanopsin. It's basically a blue light detector. And your sky is blue, and it changes colors of blue throughout the day to tell your brain what time of day it is. And then when the sun would set, that blue light detector would realize there's no more blue in your environment. It must be nighttime. And it starts a clock where the hormone cortisol will start to decrease. And like a seesaw, the hormone melatonin, which has been being produced during the day, starts to rise. And melatonin is a hormone of darkness, but it's made during the daytime. And melatonin helps initiate sleep, but it mainly keeps you asleep. And it's one of the master antioxidants. It's basically mm. fuel for the mitochondria to repair themselves. You need high levels of melatonin for the mitochondria to do what's known as autophagy and apoptosis, basically clean themselves up at night. So if you're not sleeping well, it's sometimes an issue that your melatonin levels are too low and it's due to the artificial light in your eyes at nighttime. Yeah. And I've I've heard people also talk about, I mean, you mentioned it as well as getting that early morning cue of light and almost your melatonin clock is set from the get-go. Is, is that correct? Correct. So you have a, a master clock that sits right behind your eyes called the supercosmetic nucleus. You know, and it takes the signals from your eyes and then passes that message to the rest of the organs. You know, it's a, a German word, zeitgeber or time giver. You know, the light is one of the major time givers. You know, another time giver is the time that the nutrients come into your system. So the time that you're eating, that basically wakes up the intestines and wakes up the liver and say, must be daytime because food's coming in. We got to start processing that information. So there's many things that can kind of set the body's time, but light is one of the major ones. And it sets that supercosmic nucleus, then talks to the, the clock genes in front of all the other organs. Yeah, I feel, uh, Dr. Twyman, like when I'm outside early morning and um, see people walking around like 7.30 in the morning with their sunglasses on and I'm often like, you're missing this prime opportunity to get that early morning sun into your light eyes because I don't feel, I feel like the message of sun smart, which is super important, almost has overridden just the health benefits that we can get from that, from the sun, but also the light as well. Correct. And, you know, I sometimes get the question, you know, like, should you hide from the sun all the time? And the answer is definitely not. Most people don't get enough sun. It's rare that people are getting too much sun. But that early morning sun does not have UV radiation in it. So you're not going to burn. You're not going to injure your eyes early in the morning. Now, I don't necessarily think people need to stare at the sun when it breaks the horizon, but just be outside getting that light information into your brain, essentially. And you'd mentioned sunglasses. Sunglasses are going to cause a circadian mismatch. So when you put sunglasses on your eyes and you're outside early in the morning, well, your brain's still going to think it's nighttime, but your skin is getting hit with different colors of light. Your skin's going to think it's daytime. That's going to cause a quantum mismatch of information in your system. Yeah, because we have sensors or clocks on our skin as well that sort of determines that light Correct. change. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Twyman, what about people who live, so here in New Zealand, I'm, I'm, I'm in Auckland, which is at the top of the country, and um, we have fairly, at the minute it's getting light at about 6 or 6.30, and then of course it's, it's getting dark similar time in the evening time, we're just about to have daylight savings. Um, what about for people, say in the UK, middle of winter, when there's like six hours of sunlight? Do we just naturally go along with that because that's sort of evolutionarily what it's you know supposed to happen, or do we need to mitigate that? It's a great question, and it actually will go back to the mitochondria again. So, you know, a little bit of backstory on it. You know, your mitochondria were originally bacteria, and there was a symbiosis where you know the cells like put them inside and said, "We'll take care of you. You make energy for us. We'll protect you." But the mitochondria, because of that only could come down from one parent or the other. There couldn't be two sets of mitochondria. So evolution ultimately decided it was going to come down through the mother side. So you only inherit your mitochondria from your mother, and she got it from her mom. So those are like your starting battery packs. So if you do the, there's a test here and says, you know, 23andMe. If you do 23andMe and you're looking at like your ancestry stuff, they will give you something known as your uh, maternal haplotype. It basically tells you where your original mitochondria came from thousands of years ago. And 
the majority of people, you know, who are Caucasian are going to have a more of a Northern European type of haplotype. And they're going to be what's known as an uncoupled haplotype, meaning that the mitochondria are less efficient at making energy than a coupled haplotype. People who lived on the equator did not need to have uncoupled haplotypes. What that actually means is that like on the equator, you had 12 hours of sunlight, 12 hours of darkness year round. You had light stability. When humans you know, migrated from the East Coast of Africa and went more north, there's going to be these more seasonal changes where you're going to have long light cycles and then these short six-hour cycles. Well, humans are very adaptable, but that meant that those people had to do things differently in the wintertime. They were going to be more tolerating cold. The cold helped basically, you know, keep inflammation down, push energy through their mitochondria faster because they weren't going to have as much access to food in the wintertime up north. When I'm saying north, I mean northern, you know, Europe and such. Um, and so you have to kind of go back to like what your mitochondria would have been designed to do. So in the wintertime, it is almost like hibernating. You're not going to do as much activity at that time, but you want to still be cognizant of the light cycles. You still want to see the sunrise every day of the year. It doesn't matter how cold it is in your environment. You still need that light information in your eyes, but you're probably not going to make vitamin D in many of these areas that are north because the UVB can't get through the atmosphere for a couple months of the year, especially where I'm at right now in St. Louis, Missouri. So you have to kind of build it up in your summertime if you're in the uh, the northern hemisphere. And then you kind of have this kind of like storage form of vitamin D that your body will utilize through the winter. So you almost think to yourself that you got to kind of like go into the rest and relaxation and repair mode in the wintertime. And then summer is kind of the growth mode. So you do have to do things a little bit differently because you know, evolutionally, that's what would have happened. You know, in the summertime, you had access to lots of fruits and vegetables. In the wintertime, you probably don't in certain atmospheres. So that's when you would have you know, been more of a seasonal diet and you would have probably been more keto or carnivore in the wintertime because that's all you would have had access to. Okay, interesting. And I've I've heard you talk about uh, changes in GLUT4 receptors or their ability to uh, sensitize you more to insulin when you eat outside in the summer. Can you just ha- um, chat a little bit about that? I found that super interesting. Sure. So, you know, your GLUT4 receptor, I usually tell people it's kind of like a straw and the muscle cells can put this straw out into the bloodstream and suck that glucose into them. You know, 80% or so of your glucose is you know supposed to be destined to going to your muscles. So that's why resistance training is so important, especially as you age, because your muscles are your organs of longevity, which I learned from my friend, Dr. Lyon, like the healthier your muscles, the better your metabolism is going to be. But the question about being outside is that you get different light signals through your eyes, you know, when you're outside eating food than when you are inside under artificial light. You know, artificial light, blue light specifically, will tell the pancreas to pump out more and more insulin. So if you're eating food inside, you're going to have a different glucose response than when you're eating outside under full spectrum sunlight. Mm, oh, that's so interesting. So outside of um, the sort of the the light dark cycles that allow our mitochondria to function um, sort of effectively, what other things help with our mitochondrial health? So I talked about it briefly, but you know, sleep is really the you know, the, the key. You know, you know, humans probably you know evolved consciousness to go get more nutrients to become more complex. So probably the default state was actually sleep. So sometimes in my patients who don't sleep well, I tell them like the trick is think of that your day doesn't end when you go to sleep. Your day begins when you go to sleep. You're essentially starting the night to charge up your battery. And then when your mitochondria battery is full, you wake up and you go live your day and deplete the battery again. So you have to think about all the things that help the mitochondria repair themselves. And you have to give the mitochondria enough time to do autophagy, which is basically like here, I usually explain like, you know, you eat off dishes, your dishes get dirty throughout the day. You put your dishes in the dishwasher at night and then in the morning your dishes are clean. So that's kind of what autophagy is, is it's like cleaning the dishes and you have clean dishes the next day. If you don't sleep well, you're going to have dirty dishes the next day. You can eat off them, but it's probably not as hygienic and it's not going to be as fun to eat off dirty plates for weeks on end. So you have to sleep for that process to happen. Okay, great. And um, what about practices like sauna or cold water therapy in order to sort of enhance, and of course, exercise um, 
enhancing that sort of mitochondrial biogenesis or production. Are, are, they, are these practices which you recommend your patients sort of do if they can? For sure, sure. And so I'll take the, the sauna one first is you know, there's a lot of data on saunas being beneficial for cardiovascular patients. Yeah, but first, you know, talk to your healthcare provider, make sure you don't have major issues with low blood pressure going into it, because that would be the major side effect is that you know the saunas are going to vasodilate your blood vessels and you can get a little bit dizzy, or especially if you're going to a sauna dehydrated. So you got to go in hydrated. And the benefit of the saunas is that you know it's going to activate heat shock proteins, which helps different proteins fold back together and work appropriately. You know, it's also going to help with detoxification of different heavy metals you could have been exposed to or, you know, plastics that you've been exposed to. Um, But then it's also the infrared spectrums of light that your body's getting hit with in the saunas. So either if it's a finished sauna or one of the, you know, the infrared panel saunas, that infrared light is basically charging up the water that's in your mitochondria. It's helping with what's known as structured water, exclusions on water. So that water in your body essentially kind of acts like a battery, and that infrared wavelengths of light hitting that water helps charge up that battery. Mm, okay. And um, what do you have any sort of protocols that you suggest people do with regards to sauna in terms of um, that prevention? So the the data is that your people should you know try to work their way up to you know three times a week. You can go more, but three times a week is a pretty good uh, reference range. And then time wise, you know, twenty minutes is probably pretty good. And it doesn't matter exactly what temperature it gets up to, but generally want to have kind of a, a rolling sweat with whatever temperature that's going to be. You know, it doesn't have to be like scalding hot and you know you're about to pass out to get the benefit. It's just you know, your skin's gonna be warm, and ideally you start sweating. Um, and twenty minutes after that. You pop out of it, and then to take your other, you know, uh, modality, you know, with all the biohackers are, you know, talking about is, you know, the the cold plunges and the ice baths, and you know, that's known as cold thermogenesis. Well, back to the the mitochondria, you know, the mitochondria can be either coupled or uncoupled. So inside your mitochondria, there's uh, five respiratory proteins. Think of them as like stepping stones, or if I'm holding up people watching, like fingers. You know, so a coupled mitochondria, all the fingers are really close together, and the electrons that come into the system. That's, you know, how you're making energy is you pass that electron through like, you know, a hot potato and when it gets to the end, ATP is made, which is an energy currency. So if you have really tightly coupled mitochondria, you're very efficient at making energy. When you have an uncoupled uh, mitochondria haplotype, the mitochondria respiratory proteins are a little bit spread out. The reason being is that you would waste heat during that process. It's like a radiator. Well, that heat would prevent you from freezing to death in Northern Europe. But that heat also will also be stored up as energy in the water in the mitochondria. So when you have heat there, then that shrinks those respiratory proteins back together and then you become more energy efficient. So that's essentially what cold therapy is doing is it's making the mitochondria release heat to shrink those respiratory proteins closer together so energy flow is more efficient. It's sort of like a semiconductor being cooled down to absolute zero and then you can get a semiconductor working faster. Okay, and there is um, an increase in the adipose tissue that sort of um, uh, stores the mitochondria, is that right? That brown adipose tissue. Correct. So the, there's white adipose tissue and brown adipose tissue or white, wet versus bat. So the, the brown adipose tissue is mostly on the kind of the back of the neck and the upper uh, you know, shoulder blade area. And that brown adipose tissue is brown because the mitochondria give it that color. You know, it's the same thing as like white chicken meat versus dark chicken meat. It's the mitochondria that gives it that color. The mitochondria then, you know, help burn the um, fat for energy. So you essentially use the brown adipose tissue to burn the white adipose tissue for heat and energy. And the cold helps promote more brown adipose tissue being formed. Yeah, and I've seen lots of people talk about, and I've talked about it with clients before as well, is is using cold water therapy as part of an overall sort of protocol which allows um, an uptick in metabolic rate. Although, to be fair, there I haven't seen great robust clinical trials showing that that is the case. Um, what is your sort of understanding of that area, Dr. Twyman? I would say this, the same as that. You know, it's a lot of times there's not going to be a head-to-head randomized cl- you know, clinical trial if there's not somebody selling something on the other side of it. So telling somebody to take you know an ice bath or lay in the snow and do some snow angels, nobody's going to go study that. But, you know, look to nature, you know, what has, you know, every animal done throughout time being, you know, they're always connected to the earth. There's animals that, you know, 
are able to tolerate absolute freezing temperatures because they've developed very robust mitochondrial function to keep themselves warm. So just because there's not a trial doesn't mean that you don't have an evolutionary pathway to kind of model. But I would say that, you know, with the cold therapy, you do have to work your way into it. You know, I would not recommend people go jumping in an ice bath if they've never done such a thing. You know, you're going to have a kind of a shocking experience doing that. So mostly recommend people start with, you know, kind of getting the face and the kind of the chest region cold. You activate the, as long as your mammalian dive reflux. And then after you get that kind of stimulated, then you might be able to start working your way into kind of like a cool bath. Then later, if you're, you know, strong or crazy enough, then you can start adding the ice cubes and kind of cooling it down a little bit more. But it does typically have to be the submersion. You know, I know a lot of people talk about like cold showers. The air is kind of uneven. I actually think the cold showers are way more uncomfortable than eventually getting used to a cold bath. And then, you know, everybody's you know, who's a biohacker has seen, you know, the cryo chambers and the smoke comes blasting out the top. And I've done them many times. And yes, it feels good. And maybe get some endorphins for an hour or two afterwards. But it's only really cooling the, the surface layer of your skin. So there's probably not a long term benefit of doing that. So I think it's more kind of for show for most people. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't feel good, you can still do it. But if you actually want to get the benefits of making more brown app position, you're gonna have to probably work your way up to the cold baths. Yeah, no, and I agree with that um, shower comment. I mean, I love it, but also hate it, and but feel really good afterwards. So I'm like, well, you know, that invigoration sort of gets me through a good couple of hours, and I get that sort of mental well-being. Mm -hmm. But I think that's probably about the extent of it. Right. Um, Dr. Twyman, what effect does our diet have on our mitochondrial health? It's a great question, and unfortunately, it's a wide open one in that, you know, I tell people that, you know, nutrition is important for their overall health, but it's a couple of things down from the circadian biology because light trumps all. So unless food is made in a lab, which isn't real food, you know, all food is tied to photosynthesis. So the sun hits the earth's surface and it either grows a plant, grows algae, you either eat those things or you eat the animals that ate those things. And your body's job is essentially to decode that sun information inside the mitochondria. So going inside your mitochondria is not fats, proteins, and carbohydrates. Your body runs on electrons and protons. So you're going to break down the fats and the carbohydrates into electrons and protons and then put those into the mitochondria to process energy with, you know, ideally, oxidative phosphorylation. So you burn fat for energy. And then if you require more energy, then you go into glycolysis or burning sugar for energy. But think more about food as you know, stored up sunlight and how is your mitochondria going to decode that sunlight? So if people watch me on any other type of social media or talk about nutrition, I'm always talking about eating a seasonally appropriate diet for your environment. So where I'm at, there's four seasons. So summer and spring, that's the time that vegetables and fruits are more plentiful in this region because high UV light will allow those foods to grow. You basically eat a high UV light grown food in the summertime. Your skin, your eyes, your gut all sense that information and know that it must be summertime. There would be no reason that in St. Louis, I should be eating pineapples in January. Those don't grow in this region. So that would be like putting summer into your intestines, but your skin and eyes know that it's the dead of winter. That causes a misinformation to your system. So there's no perfect diet there's just what is seasonally available in your environment and you're trying to eat for your haplotype your mitochondrial you know ability so you know if you have a very tightly coupled haplotype you know you're probably more allowed to eat more carbohydrates because you're going to be more efficient making energy for it but you should be in a high light environment or high uv light environment to make that happen somebody who has a more uncoupled haplotype they may do better with a keto or carnivore type diet in the winter time that's always going to be tied to the light cycles that their skin and eyes are getting uh, exposed to at that time of year. Yeah. As you're sitting here talking, I'm just thinking to myself how mismatched we are in our environment. Probably doesn't matter where you are and where you're listening to this. Because, of course, you mention uh, you know, food that isn't grown in a lab. But, of course, 67% of the food in the grocery store is, in fact, fat and starch and sugar and salt and additives and preservatives put together to sort of mimic food and provide calories, but not necessarily nutrients. So what impact does that have on our mitochondria that sort of providing calories, but that's about it? Well, they're, they're, they're food-like products and you could subsist on them, but you're probably not going to thrive. You're not going to be optimized on them. And 
for the most part, and this is really for the, the science nerds, it's probably due to the amount of deuterium that's in the packaged foods more than anything. And deuterium is just heavy hydrogen. You know, deuterium is a natural you know, form of hydrogen, but normally it's not in high concentrations. And your mitochondria really only want to run on deuterium depleted water. So think of deuterium as like a bigger version of hydrogen. It has a neutron in it as well. When the deuterium is present inside the mitochondria, this ATPase, which is like a spinning top, it will slow down. Think of like a turnstile. If you put something too big into the turnstile, the turnstile doesn't spin well. Well, that's what happens when there's deuterium in the turnstile. Less energy gets put out the other side. Packaged foods are chock full of deuterium. There's not a commercial grade test that you can test your food and say, oh, this is how much parts per million deuterium I have in it. But you just know that it's likely to have a lot more than when it's not produced from Mother Nature's quality control programs. Mm. Do you know, I don't think I've heard that term deuterium since Back to the Future. Uh, that would have been plutonium. Yeah. Are you sure? <laughs> yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. My dad has a DeLorean and we joke about it. So yeah, I okay. know we yeah, have yeah, Ethereum, so. There you go. Actually, I think I just got slightly confused <laughs> yeah. there on yeah. the DeLorean. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, so that's interesting because, of course, like I think of diet and the processed refined carbohydrate, which most people would base their diet on, and that it utilizes more nutrients almost than it would provide, and that is going to also impact, obviously, on that mitochondrial health. But that must be related to sort of that sort of lack of energy that you're describing. Well, also think about it is that you know if it's the carb, I mean, the fuels that go into the mitochondria for the most part are the carbohydrates and the fats, and those get broken down again into electrons and protons, and those electrons and protons especially electrons, they're programmed by the light environment. So essentially your mitochondria is going to decode the electron information. Oh, is this a summer you know, electron or is this a winter electron coming into me? And the mitochondria will make information based off of that. You'll have different free radicals or you know, oxidative markers, oxidative stress markers that come off based off of that information. So when you eat food, you have to process that food. And it's kind of like putting fuel into an engine. There's going to be smoke if the engine isn't finely tuned. So if you have a really high-functioning you know, mitochondrial engine, you can put almost any hybrid fuel into that system, even you know, junk food, and the mitochondrial engine just can take care of it. But if you have a poorly tuned up mitochondria engine, you know, you can put in the healthiest organic food you can think of. You're still going to get all this reactive oxygen species because it's like having a broken engine with bad spark plugs and you just put in premium gas and you expected the car still to go 200 miles an hour. It's not going to do that. You have to focus on programming and fixing the mitochondria. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And I've heard you talk about the nitric oxide pathway in the body and how important that is for mitochondrial health and heart health. Can we talk about that, Dr. Twyman, and, and just why it's important and how it changes as we age? Sure. So so nitric oxide is a you know signaling molecule. And you know, depending you know where nitric oxide is located determines its function. So it is not all good all the time and it's not all bad all the time. So in the cardiovascular system, lightening your arteries is a coating called the endothelium. It's one cell thick. Your endothelium coats the entirety of your 60,000 miles of blood vessels. And sitting on top of the endothelium is something known as the endothelial glycocalyx. It's kind of like a gel coat. I also think of it as kind of the bottom of a riverbed and there's the, the moss that's kind of floating in the water and it's just sensing the water. Well, that's what the glycocalyx is doing. It's sensing what's floating in your liquid blood. And when that blood comes by, it basically tickles that uh, glycocalyx. That then talks to the endothelium and says, this is how much blood is coming through the system. You know, it's a large volume of blood. Okay, the endothelium will pump out nitric oxide that nitric oxide will cause the muscle and the artery to relax, and then the flow will improve, and that'll keep blood pressure normalized. But nitric oxide also has kind of like nonstick surface or Teflon, if people still remember what Teflon is. Then the white blood cells, the lipoproteins, which are carrying the cholesterol, they won't stick to the artery wall, because that's really what it takes for plaque to form, is that something called an apolipoprotein B-containing particle. It's a mouthful. The basic thing it was like a cargo ship full of cholesterol and triglycerides and vitamins. You know, it's supposed to be going down to your muscles, well, if your arteries are really sticky, then it may get stuck in the artery wall and can, can contribute to plaque formation. So nitric oxide is critical at preventing that process from starting. And that endothelial dysfunction or lack of nitric oxide in the artery wall 
That can happen in your teens and 20s. And if you can fix it, well, you're not going to end up developing plaque later on. But if you don't fix it, well, that's the first sign that there's really something wrong with your cardiovascular system. So in the arteries, nitric oxide is very healthy. After the age of 40 or so, your body stops producing as much nitric oxide directly from the artery wall. You become a little bit more dependent on nitric oxide that's produced through your saliva. A kind of a backup pathway where when you eat nitrates, which is mostly going to be in your dark green leafy vegetables, your kale, spinach, arugula type stuff, or if you're eating beets, those nitrates get broken down in your saliva by certain bacteria called these nitrite-reducing bacteria. So this is the reason you don't want to use a bunch of antiseptic mouthwash to kill all the bacteria, because if you kill all the good bacteria, they can't do this conversion for you. And then when you swallow the saliva, as long as you have stomach acid, so this is the reason why I always talk about, got to be very careful being on long-term acid-blocking medicines, you know, if you have an ulcer, okay, that's fine. Be on it for a couple of weeks, but you don't want to be on acid-blocking medicines forever because that affects the way your body digests proteins and makes enzymes. So if you have stomach acid, well, then you can convert these things over the nitrites into nitric oxide. So it's a backup pathway for the arteries that they're not making as much nitric oxide. And you can tell if you have an issue with nitric oxide by you start having higher blood pressure, you're a gentleman, you have erectile performance issues. You know, if you have you know, cold hands and fingers, sometimes it's the blood vessels furthest from the uh, the periphery that have the issues first. So you kind of get an idea that, hey, maybe there's a nitric oxide issue. So that's kind of the cardiovascular rundown for it. But if you want to know more, like nitric oxide, it's extremely important. You know, it's inside the mitochondria and it acts also as kind of like a regulator on that energy production, because you don't want to make energy all the time, because you're always going to have to make that smoke or reactive oxygen species when that happens. So nitric oxide inside the mitochondria kind of acts as a handbrake on the four cytochrome. It just slows energy flow. And then when the body needs energy, the nitric oxide gets kicked out of that place. Mm. So if it's a backup pathway, the, the nitric oxide that is produced from our mouth, will it make the same amount that we end up losing through, is it the arginine citrulline pathway? Correct. Yeah, correct. So yeah, so uh, lining your arteries, the, the endothelium, it goes from L-arginine. There's an enzyme called endothelial nitric oxide synthase or ENOS, converts the L-arginine into citrulline. Then the kidney cycles it back to L-arginine and you circulate it. Um, it's mostly this that ENOS enzyme becomes less effective as you age. And so, yes, the salivary pathway can kind of balance it out. So I always tell people it's like, you know, it's kind of like a thermostat. You know, you're never at like 100% efficiency and you never go down to 0%. It's just that you're trying to dial it back up a little bit. And so if one kind of fails, you have the backup pathway then. But it usually has to be both pathways broken before you really start showing evidence of disease. Okay, and you mentioned the uh, dietary nitrates from uh, beets and, and greens. What about from cured meats? And this is the because there are you know I understand you know there is Jack Links you know with all of the stuff that that's got in it, but then you've got your sort of more artisan type cured meats. Like, does your body know the difference? No, 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 I don't believe it actually knows the difference. And, you know, most of those nitrates that are in meats, to cure it, you know, it's mostly from like celery juice. So it's not that uh, um, your body's going to know any difference when it's coming in that way. But yes, you don't want to have all the other things that could be with some of the, you know, uh, you know, prepackaged meat products. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And is that, that's probably maybe just a sort of a consequence of nutritional epidemiology epidemiology research and all the other things we know that come along with the processed meat and the soda and fries and whatnot. Um, so Listerine then is is obviously a no-go for pretty much everyone, I would assume. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you know yes, you want people to have, you know, healthy you know, oral systemic health, because definitely if you have periodontal disease, you have gum disease, you have abscesses in your teeth, that's going to cause a systemic response, systemic inflammatory response. And it's going to carry different interleukins and cytokines through your immune, through your blood vessels. And your blood vessels get damages the innocent bystanders from that process. So if you have a mouth that has a bunch of infections in it, you have a problem. So I always recommend people see their dentist twice a year whenever their dentist recommends that they follow up. So yes, definitely want people to floss, brush your teeth, see their dentist, but you don't want to annihilate all the good bacteria in your saliva with the you know, astringent you know, antimicrobial mouthwashes. Okay, because I have a mouthwash wash and it's, a, uh, it's one of those more natural ones mm -hmm. um, that have 
uh, sort of essential oils which are supposed to be antimicrobial. And now I'm thinking it doesn't really matter. It's actually still going, could potentially be negatively impacting my bacteria, natural or not, right? Correct. And that's why I tell patients sometimes is that, you know, your body won't know, so you got to test. So there's these little salivary nitric oxide strips you can use. It kind of looks like litmus paper. You put saliva on it. And if it turns bright red, you're making good salivary nitric oxide. If it's white as my shirt, you're not making good salivary nitric oxide. So whatever you're doing to your bacteria in your mouth isn't working for you. So so sometimes you can say like, okay, well, stop whatever you're doing for a week. And then if you went from white to red, well, then even if it's organic and it's essential oils, it's doing something to the bacteria in your saliva. Yeah, no, that's such a good call. Um, it's expensive anyway. I don't need to be buying that. Um, now, um, is there a pathway whereby the sun also helps us produce nitric oxide, Dr. Twyman? So that's a great question. So, so yeah, thank you for bringing that back up. So yeah, we're talking more about the nutrition side of things. And I'd be remiss to say that, you know, a lot of it comes from UVA radiation. So this is the UV portion of the sun that causes your skin to get pink when you're in the sun. If you stay in it too long, it's the UVA that's going to contribute to getting burned. But UVA, when it hits your skin, will cause the blood vessels to come to the surface of the skin, and the blood vessels will release nitric oxide when the UVA hits the nitrites that are in the dermal pools of your skin. So nitric oxide gets kicked off. The crazy part is that like you have red blood cells for you know, partly reasons that that sunlight comes in and the red blood cells act as like ferry boats for that light. It holds onto that light and then transmits it through your 60,000 mile blood vessels to deliver the light to the other organelles and tell the body what time of day it is. So the nitric oxide is the kind of benefit of being in the UVA. So how do you know when UVA is out? Well, there's different apps that can tell you that. You know, there's one called Circadian. Dot life tells you what time of day in your environment when UVA comes out. But, uh, you know, kind of a rough estimate is like, you know, it's usually within half an hour to an hour of when the sun rises in your environment. Your skin will start feeling warm. That's usually when UVA has come out. Mm, okay. And is there a relationship between cholesterol levels and the sun as well? Like, it's a great I, question. So, you know, you make vitamin D uh, from sulfate and cholesterol that's in your skin. But clinically, I've not seen that somebody can go, you know, bake themselves in the sun and significantly lower their total cholesterol levels. And that wouldn't necessarily be the goal. It's just that you want to activate, you know, the hormone by the sunlight versus taking a pill. Because again, throwing a vitamin D pill down into your intestines is like putting sunlight into your intestines, but your skin and eye weren't out in the game. They didn't get that same message. And you make a couple hundred different other compounds when the sunlight hits your skin. And so vitamin D just acts as almost as a proxy for how much good sun exposure you get. And again, you know, I often get the question like, well, can people get too much sun? Yes, but the greatest majority of people get too little. So you start with early morning sun for a couple of reasons. One, that light in, in your eyes sets that supercosmic nucleus. It sets that clock for how to make hormones throughout the day. But that morning light doesn't have UV in it. So when that red light Basically, the sky is, you know, always has red and infrared light. That red light hitting your skin preconditions your skin. It gets it ready for when UV light comes out later in the day. So you're much less likely to burn if you've seen some morning light before you go outside in midday. Yeah. And then, and on that burn factor, because it feels like people, it's almost like alcohol, that like people misuse alcohol. It's somewhat like they do that in the sun too, and they like bake themselves to a, to a crisp it's sort of misuse. Um, I've seen people report that they've stopped their consumption of seed oils, actually, and that's changed how their skin responds to the sun as well. Bit of a tangent, but have you come across that or are aware of that um, anecdotal? Yes, report? and it comes down to more that the people that tend to burn more are the people that had very low levels of omega-3 fatty acids in oh, their skin. Yes. And so the, you know, the omega-6s are mostly the vegetable oils, corn, soybean, and such. And ideally, the ratio of the omega-6s to the omega-3s should be about 4 to 1 or less. Many people, the ratio is 15 to 1 or 20 to 1. And the omega-3s are, for the most part, the cold water fish. So, the, you know, the salmon, the tuna, the mackerels, the sardines, but it's also the shellfish. So oysters are an outstanding source of it. Mussels, crabs, shrimp, whatever you're willing to eat from the sea you know, that's fatty will have some component of EPA and DHA in it. So people have, tend to have higher levels of natural omega-3s in their uh, cell membranes tend not to burn as much as the people have high levels of omega-6s in their cell membranes. 
Yeah. Okay. No, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, in nutrition, there is a lot of sort of reductionist thinking in and around nutrients. And um, I'd love to hear your sort of take on saturated fat. However, first, um, TMAO, trimethylamine oxide. and I don't know that I said that right, but there's that strange science which says that this sort of bacteria produced or metabolite produced by gut bacteria increases heart disease risk and that's an animal protein yet actually it's highest in fish so can you sort of what's your understanding of that dr twyman because that's like a headline maybe every couple of years Correct. And that's, you definitely hit upon it is that, you know, it'll hit a headline and people will freak out and say, oh, if you have high TMAO, you can't have animal-based products, you know, and that's just not true. So this compound TMAO, it's made in the liver. It's mostly a byproduct of how the body breaks down carnitine and choline. So yes, there's going to be high levels of this in red meat, but you mentioned seafood is going to have high levels of these compounds as well. Eggs have high levels of it, especially the choline. So I look at TMAO as more of a marker that you have an unhealthy gut. It's the bacteria in your gut breaking these things down. That's the problem. And the gut bacteria, they have their own circadian rhythms. They're supposed to be programmed by the light as well. They're supposed to be programmed by the time the nutrients come in. So often it's that if somebody has excessively high levels of TMAO, they have an unhealthy gut. So you have to teach them the things that make their circadian rhythms work better so that their gut flora it becomes more optimized. You know, taking a bunch of probiotics isn't necessarily the trick. You have to get your light environments right to do that. But high TMAO levels are associated with more kind of damaging the functionality of HDL. And HDL is a complicated topic, but you know, one of the jobs of HDL is to do reverse cholesterol transport. Basically, HDL goes into the plaques, puts a little straw into the plaques, sucks out the cholesterol like a dump truck, and then it gets in back to the blood vessels and takes it to the liver to be recycled or goes back to one of the other organs and drops the cholesterol off to the organ that needs the cholesterol. So the HDL function gets impaired with high levels of TMAO. So I would look at it, but I don't tell people that, you know, they can't eat meat if they have high TMAO. It's just more, hey, we got to work on your gut health. Yeah, no, that's such a great point. And you bring up HDL and I've heard you talk quite rightly that, you know, there's no good or bad cholesterol. It's just cholesterol and we need it. Um, and there has been some, like, people are familiar with the potential for LDL to be sort of stuck in the artery wall and, and harden. And there is some contention around the HDL level. And, and we know that you know, enough is important, but how much is too much? And is that actually more a proxy for something else going on? And that's a very good question that you're, you're bringing up. So, you know, often patients come to me and they're concerned about, you know, I have, quote, high cholesterol. Okay, well, that, you know, how much time do they have that they want to discuss this? Because it's much more complicated than high is, you know, always bad. And if you're just starting with the word cholesterol, well, cholesterol is a waxy compound that you use as a precursor to make your sex hormones. You know, it's a precursor to vitamin D, your bile acids, your cell membrane. So without cholesterol, you're not alive. But cholesterol, because it's waxy, it will not go in your liquid blood. So the liver wraps it up in something called the lipoprotein. It's made of lipids and proteins. I tell people it's like a cargo ship. So in my office, I always hold like a little tennis ball. So your liver makes these little cargo ships. The cholesterol, the triglycerides, go inside this. And then the liver pumps them out, sends them through the blood vessels, and then your muscles bind to it, or your other organs, and they download what they need. So it's more about knowing the proteins that are carrying around, or I should say the lipoproteins, than it is the cholesterol itself. And that's mainly going to be the LDL particles. And the better surrogate really right now is apolipoprotein B containing particles. But if you only have LDL particle, that's good enough for most people. HDL and the traditional panel, if your HDL-C is above 70, especially if it's above 80 as a woman, you used to be told that you're basically a heart attack proof. You have so much HDL, there's no way you can have a heart attack. But HDL is more complicated than high levels are necessarily good. It really comes down to what function is that HDL. And there's no great test to look at the function of HDL currently, but a surrogate for it would be that if you have high inflammatory load, especially if a 
lab called myeloperoxidase or MPO, high myeloperoxidase will inactivate the HDL. And so your body has to keep pumping out more HDL to replace the ones that's getting damaged. So high HDL can be a marker that you have high inflammation. I also recently just talked to a friend who, you know, had done their blood work shortly after having an infection. Their HDL was extremely low because HDL also works for the immune system. So if you have low HDL in the setting of like being you know, sick with a virus, well, that's appropriate. That doesn't mean that that's necessarily a bad thing, that your body's supposed to send HD out to kind of go, you know, fight the good fight against a virus or bacteria. So it really depends on the context. But, you know, for the most part, HDL is much more complicated than high is good. You know, if it's high, make sure you don't have inflammation. If it's low, well, sometimes there's some genetic reasons people have low HDL, but really focus on the LDL side of things first, and then you can kind of tackle the HDL side of things. Yeah. Okay. Because I imagine that if you've got dysfunctional HDL, then it's not clearing out the LDL the way it should be. But what happens to the HDL if it's just being pumped out into your system? Is that likely to cause blockages to the? Is it or it doesn't really work like that? Well, no. It, it's it's good that you say it that way. Is that you know think of that like the. I'll use LDL particles, but I would say it's an ApoB-containing particle, which most of them are the, the LDLs. So they're full of the cholesterol and the triglycerides. They're going through the arteries. If you have low nitric oxide, have endothelial dysfunction, these lipoproteins are going to stick to your artery wall. They may get retained in the artery wall and amount to an immune response. Body, the body thinks bacteria is invading and sends out monocytes and macrophages and start trying to gobble up these you know, invaders. This is the starting points of the fatty streaks and the plaque. So the cholesterol basically gets stuck in the artery walls, an innocent bystander. The HDL is going to try to go in there and maybe try to get it out. But if the HDL is, you know, inflamed, the HDL will have basically toxic waste in its cargo. Well, now the HDLs get stuck there and you're actually contributing to more plaque if you have dysfunctional HDL. So just looking at HDL by itself you really have no idea where that HDL is going. Um, so it's much better to look at the artery health with different non-invasive tests. So my office had multiple tests that look at the elasticity of the arteries, you know, what's the central blood pressure doing? What is the arteries doing for nitric oxide? You know, those can give me an idea like, well, that coating is probably pretty healthy and you're not putting plaque in the arteries. Or nope, that coating has a problem. Now we need to go look at why that is. And the blood work generally can kind of point you in that direction then. Okay. And you mentioned blood pressure. If someone has high blood pressure, I mean, often this used to be described as sort of an asymptomatic, like it would be asymptomatic. You wouldn't really know until you got it tested. Like is high blood pressure a sign that you've got that endothelial dysfunction probably occurring and, and you need to look a little bit deeper than just taking some beta blockers or whatever you take for blood pressure? Correct. Yes. And that, that's a good point is that, you know, blood pressure is a sign that there's something wrong with your artery integrity. Um, and often it is endothelial dysfunction and a nitric oxide being low type of picture. So a normal blood pressure without medications should be well shy of 120 over 80 millimeters of mercury. Normal is really 110 over 70. The risk of a heart attack and stroke starts increasing when it's over those numbers. Now, we don't typically recommend people start prescription medications until the blood pressure's consistently greater than 140 over 90, despite optimizing their sleep, their stress, avoiding caffeine, you know, limiting alcohol, limiting nicotine, all the things that are going to spike your blood pressure. If you already, you know, quote, fix all the lifestyle metrics, then medications might be useful while you're figuring out what else might be raising the blood pressure. Because high blood pressure definitely is one of the number one risk factors for you know, progressing damage to the arteries. It's, you know, um, definitely one of the bigger modifiable risk factors that can slow down plaque formation. But I usually tell people, you know, you don't have high blood pressure because you're deficient in a beta blocker or an ACE inhibitor. You know, there's something causing the arteries not to be able to relax and you just got to go looking for that. Yeah. And do you sort of subscribe to Dr. Richard Johnson's um, theory looking at fructose and um, uric acid and blood pressure? Have you, do you work with your uh, patients looking at their dietary factors in, in that sort of realm as well? For sure. Because um, yeah, I didn't know who you were mentioning first, but I definitely knew the, the, the fructose and uric acid story. So I always check uric acid in anybody who has elevated blood pressure because 
Uric acid is something that's filtered out of your kidneys. You know, most people think about uric acid when it's high, they're more predisposed to having gout, which is a painful crystal arthritis in their joints. You know, their big toe could swell up and get you know hot, red, and painful. Um, but uric acid it will have an effect on nitric oxide. So high uric acid suppresses nitric oxide. So if you know the goal is to have healthy arteries, you need healthy nitric oxide levels. So you got to get uric acid levels down by, you know. If there's something that you know that's freaking it, you know, you're getting too much fructose, you know, out of season. So you know, that's why I can tell people like, you know, fruit in season may not be a problem for you because if you have enough UV light, you can clear that, you know, deuterium from the fruit. You can get rid of the fructose. But if you're eating a ton of fructose in the wintertime where you're at, you probably can't get rid of it as well. And you're going to have higher uric acids at those times of year. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Um, and very quickly, uh, alcohol. What is your recommendation? Because, of course, everyone will bring up the French paradox uh, and uh, the fact that they drink, you know, red wine every day. Well, who knows what they do, but, you know, lowers risk of heart attacks. Right. And it, and it really depends. I mean, I, the, the, you know, the, the saying really is that, like, you know, if you don't drink, you should not be adding alcohol to your regimen for any perceived health benefit, you know. Obviously, you know, alcohol is a poison. You know, your body has to deal with it, but maybe it makes you more resilient against other things that you're going to get exposed to later. Now, the French paradox is definitely a paradox, but you know, there's so many multifactorial things that could be enrolled there. Like maybe they're drinking alcohol with friends and they're you know helping with stress relief. You know, maybe it's you know um, you know it's the polyphenols. You know, it's you know they always want to say it's the resveratrol, but resveratrol is in such minuscule amounts compared to what you would actually need. And I think th I can't remember the exact detail, but like you'd have to drink like sixty bottles of wine to get a therapeutic dose of resveratrol, and that's not possible. You're not going to be alive. You have alcohol poisoning. So I usually don't tell people to start drinking if they don't, but if they drink, yeah, the data is actually coming pretty close that like less is better. You know, it used to be said that like you know man could drink two drinks a day, which would be like one 12 ounce beer is a serving, you know, one, I think it's six ounces of wine and like one and a half ounces of hard liquor, you know, whiskey, bourbon, you know, that's a drink. You could have two drinks per day. So 14 drinks a week, a woman could have half that amount, but the data probably is pretty clear. Like it should be one drink a day or less for the majority of people, especially if you already start developing any type of cardiovascular issue. You know, if you're developing high blood pressure, you're developing issues with um, you know, your sleep, especially, is one of the things where I would say you got to be very careful with alcohol. Um, but if it's more of a um, kind of go off track a little bit, you know, the alcohol, maybe it is, you know, a slight quote, blood thinner, but it does have a lot of metabolic effects that aren't necessarily going to be so healthy. So definitely not a teetotaler, but, you know, less is more for people. Yeah, no, that's great. And that French paradox is probably, again, just an example of that reductionist. Uh, approach to nutrition that um, we like to take. Dr. Wyman, I'm really mindful of your time. I do just have two more questions. One is, who would you suggest or who do you look to with regards to finding out more information and research? Like who sort of mentored you? Because it's always really good to know who the experts sort of look up to as well. Well, fortunately, I've had so many uh, mentors in my life. You know, I had all my conventional training docs. And then, you know, after getting out of training, you know, uh, from, a, you know, the integrative functional medicine standpoint, you know, it was, you know, Dr. Mark Houston, Dr. Joel Kahn were the big cardiovascular influences, Dr. Steven Sinatra, uh, you know, the godfather of integrative cardiology. Those are people that, I, you know, initially got very interested in uh, this type of field. You know, from a lipid standpoint, I learned a lot from Dr. Thomas Spring. He's very, very active on social media. Um, you know, your head will explode when you listen to his like eight-hour podcast of just lipids when he did with Dr. Peter Atia, who's also a very good uh, resource. I you know, learned a lot of longevity type of uh, medicine from uh, Dr. Atia and a lot of the exercise things that I mentioned from Dr. Atia. Nutrition is, you know, it's my friend, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. She's the protein expert. You know, muscle-centric medicine is her uh, specialty. So, you know, talking about healthy muscle as you age, that's her area of expertise. And then in the quantum realm, you know, it's Dr. Jack Cruz. Uh, and then one of the uh, experts in kind of in how structured water, exclusions on water is, is uh, one of my friends, Carrie Bennett. She's, you know, on Instagram teaching quantumology every day. So those are kind of my mentors and go-to uh, resources. Oh, no, that's awesome. And um, finally, the, the question I did actually forget is supplements for heart health. I know coenzyme Q10 and I take something called MitoQ. Is there anything else? Oh, no. Well, actually, I'd be interested to know what you think about that. And also any other supplements which you sort of 
blanket recommend or broadly recommend, if there are any? That, that's the, the question. There really are none that I would say are blanket for everybody. I mean, the only supplement I would recommend would be photobiomodulation, you know, using red light panels to augment your light environment when you're not out in nature's optimal light environment. Now, you know, CoQ10, it helps with you know, electron flow in the mitochondria. And there's times and places where CoQ10 supplementation is appropriate. You know, if you're on a statin, if you're on a beta blocker, you know, or you already have atrial fibrillation, high blood pressure, a weak heart, you have cardiomyopathy, CoQ10 may be useful in those situations. But I never recommend blanket supplementations for everybody. You know, do the testing to figure out what the person may be deficient in, teach them if they can get it from, you know, a food source or an environmental source, and then targetly supplement what are deficient. Dr. Twyman, you are a wealth of information and I have so enjoyed this conversation and your podcast with Dr. Lyon and Muscle Intelligence and the men over at uh, Mark Bell Power Project. Yeah. <laughs> um, where can people find you on social media? Well, thank you for the opportunity to, to speak to your audience today. It's always amazing that, you know, three years ago, I launched my practice to focus on heart attack and stroke prevention and to start putting my foot out there on social media and, you know, slowly kind of building up a presence on Instagram and then people finding the message of, you know, circadian biology and heart attack prevention interesting. And now I got people in New Zealand listening to me. So thank you for this opportunity. Um, but if people are interested in learning more about myself, I'm fairly active on Instagram. My handle is Dr. Twyman, Dr. Twyman. And my website is the same, drtwyman.com. Every Monday night, I usually go live on Instagram with a different topic. Sometimes it's biohacking. So actually, tonight I'm going to be talking about methylene blue, but often talking about subclinical atherosclerosis, nitric oxide, all the things that you heard us talk about today. I do deeper dives in these topics on Monday nights. That is awesome. Dr. Twyman, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you. All right, team, I will pop links to Dr. Michael Twyman's uh, Instagram and where to find him in our show notes. You can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, over on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin, or head to my website, mickeywillardin.com, where you could book a one-on-one -on -one consult with me, sign up to a number of my meal plans, or even get access to my recipe portal for just 12 bucks a month pretty great deal actually where you also get an opportunity to connect with me through our online platform messaging system you get my weekly emails we have a facebook group and generally you just get the awesomeness that comes from being part of my real food community all right team you have a great week and we'll chat next week see you later